This is God's word, starting from Mark chapter 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became intensely, sorry, radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. So let's, let's, let's uh, turn to God's word. We're going to think together as a community a little bit more about what that means. There we go. Graphic. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, if, you, if you're just with us today for the first time, uh, again, you're really welcome. Um, a bit of context. We've been working through the Gospel of Mark together as a church, asking, you know, back to first principles. Who is Jesus? Uh, what is he like? And what does it mean for us to follow him? And uh, we get the best, I think, you know, the best information about that from the primary sources, right? Uh, the Gospel of Mark is one of those key primary sources. Um, I've actually been away for the last, uh, well, as I say, away, I've been, I haven't been preaching for the month of August, so um, it's good to be back. I'm pleased to be able to um, teach and, and just, you know, let's, let's examine God's Word together and enjoy that. Uh, so Mark chapter 9. And we're going to see here uh, two things, pretty simple really. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God, and we're going to see that Jesus is the Son of Man. These two big claims at the center of the Christian faith. Uh, and then we're going to ask ourselves in, in conclusion, then, then, then what do we do with this? All right, if Jesus is the Son of God, and if he is the Son of Man, then what do we do with this? Um, so first of all, let's look here uh, at, at these verses, and we'll see that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, uh, and we see that in verses 2 through 8 of our section. It's sort of nicely divided into two for us. Um, this, this, this section that we've just read together um, is really, I suppose, the halfway point of the entire gospel of, of Mark. It's like the, the, the turning point, if you like. Um, in, the, in the previous section to accompany this, Peter, the apostle, we could probably describe him at this stage as the chief apostle. He's like the spokesman, I suppose. Um, he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. And, and he's the first person to do that. He gets it right. He nails it. And yet, as, as, as he starts to ramble on, as, as Peter often does, um, it's clear that it's his idea of what a Messiah should be, not what Jesus thinks a Messiah should be. And so Jesus um, rebukes Peter. He corrects him. And so I suppose, if anything, Peter is maybe uh, just feeling uh, tail between the legs a little bit, maybe a bit of ashamed of, of, of just getting it so wrong. And so then they are brought to this section here, to this moment, this, this monumental section 
in the Gospel of Mark. Dramatic scenes. Because what they do is, particularly for Peter and James and John, they show that Jesus is the Son of God. Amazing. Let's look. Uh, verse 2, it says that Jesus uh, took his inner circle, um, you know, within, within the 12 apostles. It was like an inner circle, I suppose. And they consisted of Peter and James and John. And off they went up a high mountain. And whenever we see a high mountain or, or people being taken up into a mountain in the Bible, we know... Uh oh, something's about to happen. Uh, something fairly major is about to happen. Why is that? Uh, because historically uh, and through the Old Testament, whenever God meets with his people in tremendous and significant ways, it often takes place up a mountain. Um, the, the, the big one, I suppose, is when uh, the people of Israel came out of slavery in Egypt. They were released into the wilderness and then they gathered at the foot of a, a mountain called Mount Sinai in sort of modern day Egypt and that sort of area. And... Um, uh, they, they, they prepared themselves, they stood at the, uh, they gathered at the, the, the ground around Mount Sinai and uh, prepared themselves through purification and cleansing and all the rest of it. And then this, this, this uh, cloud appeared at the top of the mountain, it was thick, it was thunder, it was rumbling, and Moses ascended up the mountain into the cloud, into the presence of God. It was thick with his presence, and God spoke to Moses. He, he revealed his word, he revealed himself to Moses. And we see this again and again uh, in various sections as well, uh, God revealing himself on, on a mountain to, to various uh, leaders and figures throughout the Old Testament. And so here we have Jesus leading these people up into the mountain, his inner circle, all right? And it says there in verse 2, he was transfigured before them. Transfigured. Uh, the Greek word is, is metamorpho, which is where we get our, 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 our word metamorphosis from. You know, and, and maybe you remember back from primary school uh, science or something, you know, when, when the, um, the caterpillar makes the cocoon and then a few days later it appears as this beautiful butterfly. How does it get from being a, a quite an ugly caterpillar to this gorgeous, beautiful, color, colorful butterfly? Well, the, the scientific process is known as metamorphosis, literally a transfiguration, a change of outward appearance. And so we see something uh, similar here taking place uh, up this mountain. Jesus was transfigured. It says he became radiant. He became uh, white, dazzling. Uh, this unearthly luminosity just seemed to fall out of him. This unearthly white. In fact, the, the Gospel of Matthew, which also talks about this, adds this extra phrase that we don't hear, see here in the, the Gospel of Mark. It says that Jesus, during this time, his face shone like the sun. You know, if you ever, you shouldn't look at the sun directly, obviously, but if you ever do by mistake or whatever, you'll know that you, you, it's so bright. You can't, you can't focus on it because it is so bright. There's so much power, there's so much energy, and it burns the back of your eyes. When you, when you look somewhere else and you know, you, all you can see is the sun, it's burned a hole in the back of your eyes. Something like that was going on here with this glory, this light emitting from Jesus, metamorphosized, I suppose we could say. It's almost as if a sliver of heaven had been opened upon Jesus. You know, the curtains had parted for a moment, this intense purity was radiating from him, this stunning, glorious figure on top of this mountain. And this just intensified even further. Look down at verse 4. It says, And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. Two giants of the Old Testament, of the, the, the people of Israel. Two giants. 
And it's, it's not every day that these people would appear, like make post, sort of post-grave uh, appearances. But here they are, talking to Jesus. I suppose it might be similar for us, maybe, maybe not, but like if St. Patrick were to suddenly appear with hundreds of years earlier, this great man of God suddenly appears talking to Jesus, similar thing. Peter, James, and John, it says in verse 6, they responded with terror. Wouldn't you, I mean, wouldn't you? Terrified. This is just... We don't know if we're even alive or dead right now, if we're even asleep or awake. What is going on? And that explains why he made this, um, you know, slightly odd, I suppose, um, request here. He says, look... Uh, Rabbi, Jesus, um, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It says he didn't know what to say because they were terrified. I don't think he was thinking of a tent that you might get in uh, Decathlon, you know, and, and uh, you know, just so you can maybe stay on the mountain, Jesus, in your resurrected, glorious appearance. Um, that's not what he was saying. Uh, quite often in the, in the Old Testament, shelters or, were, were put up almost as monuments. That something significant has happened here. You know, these little tabernacles, these little monuments to the presence of God. Maybe we should build something like this, Jesus. Would that be good? Is that, is that, is that okay? Is that how we respond? Anyway, there's more to come. Verse 7. This cloud, it says here. I mean, as if it isn't freaky enough as it is, right? This cloud. This cloud appears. It overshadows them. I mean, again, Sinai, right? We, we remember that the majestic presence of God descending in this cloud and then this voice speaks out shakes the ground no doubt booming declaring speaking in in a language that they could understand in their language this is my beloved son it boomed listen to him you're just like on top of sinai The mountain, all those centuries ago, Yahweh, God, spoke through a cloud, declared himself. And here, fast forward to this moment in Mark 9, he was doing the same thing again. He was declaring himself, and yet, this time he was saying, this is my son. I love him. Listen to him. And then, almost as quickly as it began in verse 8, suddenly, says Mark, looking around, they no longer saw anyone else, only Jesus. Moses, Elijah, they're just temporary, but Jesus remains. In such a short space, such few words, this stunning moment this, this revelation of God, uh, the, you know, the, the curtain between heaven and earth has been parted for just a minute or two. This, this dazzling light has been allowed in. And then just as quickly as it began, it returned to normal. And the four of them were just stood on top of this mountain. Just incredible, incredible experience. Just imagine for a moment the silence, looking at each other, eyes wide, hearts 
racing. What just happened? Breathing shallow. Legs feel like jelly. Jesus is the son of God and and they have just directly experienced that. And for them, it was almost too much. Too much to take in. I don't know who he is, they would have thought to themselves, but he is no ordinary man. Certainly not after that. Jesus is the son of God. I suppose we need to then ask ourselves as we read this together today, what, what would the purpose have been of, the, of this intense moment what was the reason that this happened? Why did, why did Jesus do it? Well, don't forget the, the background that we've been seeing um, earlier on and, and really for the whole of the gospel is that the, the disciples have been very muddled um, about who Jesus is. They've, they've misunderstood him. They've been mistaken. And this isn't just a kind of mistake where someone might say, oops, you know, sorry. This is the kind of mistake that is dangerously wrong. If they, if they misunderstand Jesus and who he is, it is dangerously wrong. They must understand who he is. They must realize who he is. You know, their, their soul depends on knowing who Jesus is. Not just them, but the, the whole world after them. These were the ones who were to take the good news, right, around the globe. The claims of the kingdom. They had to understand who Jesus was. This is not just a life and death issue. This is far more important than that. These disciples, I mean, it's, it's amazing, really. They'd heard so much about Jesus up until this moment from Jesus. They'd heard his teaching. Um, they'd heard about the kingdom of God. They'd seen the signs. They'd seen the miracles. They'd seen the 5,000 people being fed from, from a small helping of food. They'd seen Jesus speak to the storm and, and stop the winds and the waves. They'd seen Jesus walk on the water. He, he's healed countless numbers of people. They, they, they have seen that. They have lived closely with Jesus. So they know what he's like behind closed doors. You know, they, they know what he's like in private. They know that the, the public Jesus and the private Jesus. They know all that. And yet they still get it wrong. It's just amazing. They still misunderstood him. Because as Peter demonstrated in the, the passage before in, in Mark 8... They were too busy, it seems, trying to squeeze Jesus into their framework about who he should be. Right? Rather than really listening to what he's saying. So it seems to be, therefore, they needed to experience that Jesus was the Son of God. God pulled back the curtain momentarily to reveal the divine radiance, the glory of his son. God intended to say to these, four, these three apostles, look, look at him, see him, listen to him, stand in the presence of his greatness for a few moments, experience it, and then you'll know he's my son. Just for a moment. That's what's going on. I don't know if you've ever been in the, in the presence of someone or something truly great. 
I was thinking about this the other day, and I don't think I can say I've actually met and come into the presence of someone truly great. Maybe you have. Maybe it's royalty. Maybe some celebrity. Maybe some leader. True greatness. It's very rare. I, I guess I could, the closest I have come is maybe to a great place or a great building. I remember um, in my medical elective when I was training, and um, I went to India, and uh, I went to a city called Agra which is in the north of India, and of course it's the place of the famous Taj Mahal. And you've no doubt seen pictures of the Taj Mahal, you've, you've probably done a puzzle with it on, maybe a tea towel, you've seen it on TV, you've seen it somewhere. It's a glorious, remarkable, wonderful building. But there's something about actually visiting it. And I remember uh, being dropped off with a pal I was traveling with at the Taj Mahal, a big gateway, and you walk. The gateway itself is impressive, right? You're like, wow, that's a nice gate. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you walk up. But I must admit, it was, it was weird. Like, I, I surprised myself. I was so familiar with the pictures. And yet there's something about the place, something in the air. It just, it was a remarkable presence, was all I could say. You know, I'm not saying it was a necessarily spiritual presence, but just, wow, this is a, a wonderful spot. You know, this is a truly great Remarkable building. Just that sense that what I had seen on the puzzle or on the tea towel or on the pictures did not do it justice to the reality of the thing itself. And I think something like that was going on here. The picture that they had of Jesus and the actual experience of his glory in his presence were, were, were far apart. And for a moment, Jesus brought those two things together. He wanted his disciples to experience that he is the Son of God. But note with me, this is not just an experience of God for experience's sake. And we can see God intended to shake their unbelief, to, to blow away the cobwebs from their hearts, right? To, to knock them sideways. This is not just a fluffy, yay, me and Jesus kind of experience that God was bringing to them. This was a, don't you get it? Open your eyes and look at him kind of experience. It was the kind of experience where God took them by the scruff of the neck and shook them and says, look at him. He's my son. I love him. This experience took what they perhaps knew intellectually, the words that they had heard, and for a moment or two it made it real. You know, it, it, it made it go on fire in the deepest parts of their hearts and minds. How should, we, how should we take this today, do you think? You know, should, should we seek this transfiguration experience today if you're a believer in Jesus? Is, is that what we're to take away from this? Should we seek this or is this just a one-off? Is this just a remarkable one-off moment in history? Which... Which one do we go with? Of course, um, depending on, on, on you, perhaps, and, and your experience and your church upbringing, if it is indeed uh, you've come from a church upbringing, um, you, you'll know that, that the many Christians do that. They seek experiences of God. Moments after moments, experiences of God, attending this event and that event. They want to feel his presence. And that's a good thing, right? It's, it's good to want and hunger for more of God and to experience him breaking through into the, sometimes the monotony, into the suffering, into the sadness, into the darkness of our world. We want that, right? That's a good thing. 
In fact, the New Testament itself talks in, in, in multiple ways about knowing God, about being filled uh, with the knowledge of his presence, about desiring more of God's, right? And of course, the Bible isn't just meaning to, to desire to know more about God, although content is important, knowledge is important, of course. You know, we're to, we're to seek after more, absolutely right. But as we can see here, it is not just an experience for experience's sake. But the experience here, the, the, this sudden revelation of Jesus in power and in glory, uh, was to bring the disciples from unbelief to belief. You know, from, from, from sketchiness to solidity in, in what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. To take them deeper into relationship with him. So we can see here also that, that the experience that they had, they, they were given it not because they asked Jesus for it. Lord, show us more of yourself. Take us up the mountain. We'd love a bit of that. Nor was the experience granted to them because they were doing so well. And Jesus said, you know what? To honor you and, and your tremendous progress and faith in me, I'm going to bless you in this way. The others can wait. You come up the mountain. That's not how it was either. This experience was given to them because they needed it. And they were woefully off target. And Jesus revealed himself in this way to bring them back to himself. And so for us today here at Foundation Church, and you may be sitting here listening to this, um, God, listen to this, God may grant us intense experiences of his presence by his grace from time to time in our Christian walk and in our worship. Praise God. But oftentimes those experiences are intended to correct us when we're wrong, to shake us when we're feeling empty, to refresh us when we're dry, to console us in our suffering, to strengthen us when we feel weak. That's what these are often intended for. To remind us who it is we're dealing with. To blow the cobwebs out of your heart. Jesus wants you to draw closer to him, to his heart. He wants you in a deeper relationship with him. And occasionally, occasionally, he will manifest himself in tremendous, astounding ways to you. So yes, yes, let's desire more of Jesus. Yes, let's hunger for experiences of his presence. Yes, let's call out to him for his gifts to receive more of him. Let's, let's pray for signs and wonders to, to happen in our experience. Amen? But, with that in mind, we have to know this. The highest highs in this life are at best a foretaste of what is to come. Just a, a momentary parting of the curtains. That's all they will be. Paul, the apostle, sums it up beautifully in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Speaks to this tremendously gifted church in this letter and he says even now with all your gifting and all your experiences he says even now we see in a mirror dimly but then when Jesus comes then we shall see him face to face now we can know him in part but then we can know him fully even as we are fully known the highest highs are just a foretaste of what is to come Jesus is the Son of God. Let's press into him. Second thing we see then, second half, 
Jesus is the son of man. And then the contrast is so jarring between these two moments. We see this in verses 9 through 13 to the end of our our passage. It says in verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain. I think, you know, they're physically walking down the mountain, but no doubt, you know, spiritually, psychologically, they were coming down from this thing that had just happened to them. Just the silence as they sort of walked, you know, looking at the floor very intensely, maybe thinking the same thoughts. What just happened? Maybe catching a glance with one of the other disciples, but not saying anything. They were all thinking it. But Jesus, it seems, was the first to speak. He says he charged them, verse 9, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had come back from the dead. And for once it seems that the apostles sort of obeyed. They kept the matter to themselves. But what is this? He's going on about the Son of Man coming back from the dead. The Son of Man, uh, by the way, is a term that Jesus frequently uses to refer to himself. Um, It's a self-referential term. And at the very basic level, I suppose, um, it's a reference to his humanity. I'm a Son of Man. You know, I'm a person, just like you, underscores his humanity. Um, but there's, there's possibly a deeper significance to this term, son of man, as well. Uh, and, and we pick that up from a, a little section in chapter 7 of Daniel, the, the great Old Testament sort of prophet. Um, this heavenly figure in one of Daniel's amazing visions, this heavenly figure is presented to God on the throne, God the Father. And this heavenly figure, called a son of man, the son of man, It says, receives the kingdom of God, the power of God, and all people, every tribe, nation, and tongue will serve him because he has dominion forever and ever. That's what the Old Testament sort of suggests, points to. So when Jesus uses this term, son of man, some people just understand that, you know, that in his day, as, as, oh, he's just talking about himself. But for those who had ears, there was something more, right? Anyway, park that in your mind for a moment or two. Um, don't tell anyone about this until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And it says that they were obviously questioning in their own minds, what does this mean? What does this mean, rising from the dead? Um, presumably they would have understood the, the literal sense, someone who had died or was dead and put in the ground can come back to life. We, we get that. But the thing that the disciples were apparently struggling and stumbling over, what what, what was the interpretation? What is he on about? We've just been up the mountain. We've just experienced the glory of God. And now what is this you're talking about? Someone dying and rising again. How how does this fit in? How do these two things fit together? How, How does this even figure in our conversation? You know, perhaps for once the disciples were clearer than ever that Jesus is the Son of God. How how does this all come together? And so eventually, one of them spoke up, and they asked in verse 11, um, look, Jesus, uh, why is it that the scribes, you know, the scholars, the theologians, why do they say that Elijah must come first? What's that about? Um, Elijah was a great Old Testament prophet. We've just seen that. He was sort of 
for that moment or two, speaking with Jesus, we saw that. But Elijah was one who was predicted by the Old Testament prophets to be returning uh, one day before God comes in power. Right? Before the day of the Lord, before the kingdom of God comes, Elijah uh, would appear. And, and so the scholars, the scribes, emphasized this, they popularized it. And so there was this popular and common expectancy that this Elijah figure would appear to usher in the kingdom of God, the day of God. And when he appears, whoever he may be, he signals that the glory days shall return, that the sweeping away of Israel's enemies, Yahweh will return as king to his throne. And so Jesus talk about the Son of Man dying and rising again, it just does not fit. It does not fit that story, that narrative. Jesus says in verse 12 then, he realizes what's going on. He realizes what's in their hearts. He says, well, yes, you're right. The scholars are right. Elijah does come first. And he does come to restore all things. You've got that right. He, he, he's like the, the first page in a brand new chapter of the story of God. But, says Jesus, you've only got half of it. And then he puts it back in their court. Answer me this then, he says. What does it mean that that it is written that the Son of Man must suffer and suffer contempt and die and rise again? Jesus is saying, look, the Bible, you're right, speaks of God's glorious kingdom. It talks about the returning king. It talks about the peace and restoration and wholeness and salvation and Elijah. Yes! But that's not the whole story. In fact, Jesus says, you know what, the Bible also speaks of the suffering son of man, the the servant, the the one who represents his people and is punished in their place. Remember Isaiah 53, remember Psalm 22, remember Zechariah 13, says Jesus. All of these things point to the suffering son of man. Don't forget that bit in your Bible as well. You miss those bits out. Jesus is saying here to the disciples, you can't cherry pick the bits You want. That's not how it works. You just want your version of truth. You you want to choose to believe the bits you want. You want the glory. You want the good times, but you don't want the cost. When I was at school, I I was um, secondary school in the 90s. I know it doesn't look like it, but I I was there. And it seemed to be that everybody supported Manchester United. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why I think, I mean, I, I, I'm, from, I'm from Brighton, right? Brighton has a football team, better now than it was back then, let me tell you that. Uh, no one supported Brighton except a few of us weirdos. And um, everybody supported Manchester United. And the reason why is that Manchester United were doing well in the 90s, right? Uh, they were the top team. Um, they, they'd won, you know, multiple Premier Leagues, FA Cups, uh, went on to win the European Cup twice. They'd done great. That's why so many kids supported Manchester United, and, and, and you know what? They just wanted to share in the glory of United and say, yeah, I follow them. You know? And they wanted to pick the best team. They wanted bragging rights. You know, other, t- other kids like me who supported Brighton or uh, you know, West Ham or whatever would look at those kids who supported United and said, you know what? You're just glory hunters. Right? You want the good stuff. You want to ride on the coattails of United. But real fans, we go through the pain. You know? We follow our team through thick and thin. Right? It seems to be here that the disciples, in effect, were glory hunters. 
They wanted the best bits of the kingdom. They wanted the bragging rights. They wanted the kingdom to come, the the restoration of all things. They wanted the victory. Of course, they placed themselves on the winning side of that. And they just could not see how the the suffering son of man could could fit into that narrative, that storyline. Nothing to do with it. You know, Jesus says in verse 13, Elijah has come, I'll give you that. But look, even, even, even he suffered when he came. Even he was mistreated and eventually had his head chopped off by King Herod. Yes, he was referring to John the Baptist as the Elijah figure, the one to come, who would announce the beginning of the new chapter in God's great story. That's the thing about religion, isn't it? Any form of religion, really. Um, People can use it. They can can make up their own version of whatever works for them. Um, Of course, like the Manchester United supporters of the 90s, in my experience, uh, they want the good bits, right? They put themselves on the winning team. They want the glory, but not the cost. They screen all that other stuff out about death and crosses and resurrections and faith and repentance. They want access to the glory, but they're not prepared to pay the cost. They embrace, according to Jesus, the whole thing or nothing. You have all of me or you have none of me, says Jesus. Otherwise, religion is just something that we have created. We've just put it together, a pastiche of ideas and hopes that we just... Hope will come through for us on the final day. But according to Jesus here, that won't work for you. That won't save you. Right? There's no power in that stuff. That's just wishful thinking. That's just something in your mind. Jesus knew from the start of his ministry, in order to bring the kingdom of God, in order to restore and to replant and to bring new life, I'm going to have to deal with the cause of all the, all the sin, all the decay, all the troubles, all the sorrow, all the mess, all the abuse. I'm going to have to deal with that first. And as he suggests here, and as he makes very clear later, it took the Son of Man to suffer and die, and go into the grave and rise again in order to open the door to the glory days. And so Jesus is the son of God, but he's also the son of man. And what we're seeing here in this text is that he is both together. You don't get to choose one or the other. It's all or nothing, according to Jesus. The disciples struggled to grasp this tension. He is the son of God, and he is the son of man. He's the lion, and he's the lamb. Right? He comes as a king to rule over you, but he stoops down as a, as a servant to give his life to serve you. He, he comes as your Lord to tell you how to live, but he also appears as your lover who lays his life down so that he can win your heart back to himself. He is glorious as we have seen, resplendent. All the angels are praising his name. And yet he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is both son of God, son of man. As the son of man, 
He suffered as a perfect human for his people on their behalf. He he received that punishment. We've been singing about that. But yet as the son of God, he was able to take all the sins of all his people down to the grave. And he buried them there. Amen. So that when he rose again, because death couldn't hold him, right? The grave couldn't hold him down. He rose in victory. A a human being rose from the grave. He overcame death. And yet as the son of God, he made it possible for you. He brought that to you. So that you can burst through death and share in his resurrection life. He's son of man and he's son of God. So as we, as we draw this stuff to a close then, let's, let's think for a few moments together about what this means for us here today. Um, and and this, this applies to any, anybody, whether you are a follower of Jesus already um, and you want to know what it means to be a follower, or, or maybe you're not yet a follower and you're thinking about it, you're examining it from the outside, that's fine. Uh, we, we, we love both types here. <laughs> We want you to know clearly what it is to follow Jesus and to enjoy uh, what he's done for you. So, so, so wherever we stand, let's, let's ask ourselves, what does this mean for us? In what sense can we follow Jesus here? Two, two ways, and then we're done. Um, firstly, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, number one, a follower shares in his sufferings. He shares in his sufferings, or she shares in his sufferings. Uh, Mark, the gospel writer, uh, wrote this is the earliest gospel of the four gospel accounts that we have. Uh, At the time he wrote his gospel account, uh, Christians were starting to feel what it was like to be persecuted, most likely under Emperor Nero. They they started to understand what it meant to have faith in the Son of Man and faith in the Son of God, and that's going to hurt them. It's going to cost them. Um, because that faith was radically opposed to the thought process of the day. Because in that day, of course, Caesar was God. Caesar was Lord. He's your commander-in-chief. You give your allegiance to him. Any other thought system or belief system that challenged that and said, no, Jesus is Lord, he is the king, that gets you in trouble. You find yourself out of work. Maybe even out of your house. You certainly can't expect any Christmas cards from your friends at work. Occasionally, it meant violence. Even in the worst cases, suffering death because of your faith in Jesus. It's what it meant for these people who read this first, whose eyes fell on these words before ours did. But those who were suffering at that moment when they read this, who saw Jesus and how he expected his disciples to share in his sufferings, that's what comes with a job. To them who are suffering for the faith, it would bring some element of hope, some element of consolation, because it would correct the wrong thinking that there's something wrong with my faith. That's why I'm suffering for Jesus. Instead, it would remind those who are suffering for Christ that it comes with the territory of following Jesus. And today, that is painfully obvious as we look at what's happening in places like Afghanistan right now. We're we're, we're Christians in that ancient country um, are are up against tremendous hostility under this new uh, renewed regime that they find themselves under. Finding themselves put out of home 
suffering violence and so forth. Not just Afghanistan, of course, multiple places, Syria, Somalia, Saudi Arabia, and, and, and countless other places. But we, of course, come, um, most of us anyway, from, from a different perspective um, here in the West. Yes, it's true that Christianity is not cool. It's never been cool. Don't let anyone tell you it's cool. It's not cool. Um, not by the world standards anyway. I think it's very cool, but not by the world standards. Yes, we're going to feel some growing hostility, I think, in our own day, of course. But for us in the West, we've done an excellent job in general of screening out suffering. Right, we're, not, we're not very good at dealing with any form of suffering. We're less well-equipped today than we have ever been any previous generation before us. We've got the most in terms of resources and technology and opportunity, and yet we cannot suffer. We, we, we lack resilience. And so we, we, we like to think about the good bits of Christianity. We, we agree to the benefits. We, we like the fact that God is for us, that he loves us, and he wants to do good things for us. We love that, but rather like those supporters of Manchester United in the 90s. We can, if we're not careful, become glory hunters here. We, we, we so dislike the suffering bits that we, we just can't reconcile that with the religion that we want to have. And so we put that stuff to one side and we just go with the good stuff. We think we can have our cake and eat it. You know, we think we can cherry pick and leave the, 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 the less tasty stuff rather like Peter, James, and John. But friends, let me just say this very clearly. If you sign up to that kind of religion, that kind of Christianity, that just emphasizes the good bits and forgets the other stuff, then when suffering comes, most likely you will fall away and your religion will be worthless. All right, Jesus said the same in Mark 5, you know, uh, with the seed that goes down and gets choked out. That's what we're dealing with here. So for us today, the fact that we, we share in his suffering serves as a warning, a reminder. Whether you're a believer in Jesus or looking into the faith from the outside, following the Son of Man means sharing in his suffering. It just does. But that's not all, because the second thing I want to leave you with, following the Son of Man, following the Son of God, means that you are guaranteed to share in his glory. Sharing his sufferings, but you are guaranteed to share in his glory. View your suffering through that. You know, we can participate, we can share in his glory. And as we've been thinking, the, the, the experiences, the, the mountaintop experiences that we may or may not have now uh, are, are snippets, right? They're, they're momentary breakthroughs. But, but at times, just want to encourage you, God is pleased in the here and now. God is pleased at times to visit his people with power. He loves to do that from time to time. And at time to time, he will grant profound experiences of his love, of his presence, of his power, of his holiness. It might leave you in tears. It might leave you on the floor. It might leave you in silence. It might last for a few moments to a few days. And some perhaps, maybe from a charismatic or Pentecostal background, might understand some of these things as the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when he comes in power upon you. you know, the old Reformed guys would have, would have referred to similar things as the assurance of faith. This, this moment when God the Father sweeps you up in his arms and loves you and, and brings you close to his heart and says, I, I know that 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 God loves me. He, he grants these moments of extreme bliss, of profound experience 
from time to time. God does it. We should ask for it. We should pray for it. We should seek for it. We should hope for it. These extraordinary moments. And by the way, they may come during the ordinary means. All right, the ordinary means. We talk about that at Foundation every now and again. Through the word being preached and read. Through the, the sacraments being performed. You know, the bread and the wine. Through, through confession of sin. These ordinary moments in our worship service, so to speak, God may visit you in an extraordinary power, making it powerfully alive, like fire in your hearts. Followers are guaranteed to share in his glory, and yet whatever that may look like for you, they are snippets, a foretaste. All right, don't forget, one day we shall know in fullness. Now it's just like looking in a mirror dimly. Then we'll see face to face. Then we will look on the, the face of Jesus, this, this glorious, radiant, resplendent face, smiling with love in his eyes towards you. The Son of Man and the Son of God, welcoming you home. Come in, he will say to you, enjoy my glory. And that moment, anything else that we have experienced in this life will 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 fade away in significance. No more fear, no more terror, no more sadness, just deep, profound joy, overflowing with life. Come to Jesus.